last week we talked about the problem of evil. And I said, dealing with the problem of evil, you're going to have to spend a ton of time in Scripture because that's the only place that you can find answers for the problem of evil. These discussions, you're going to end up getting pulled away from Scripture a lot and having a lot of common grace discussions using our proximate arguments, evidence from the world around us, and our existential arguments, evidence from our own experience. And you're not trying to get to the point where you can convince a PhD in physics that you know more than them about physics. And all of these discussions about our faith with unbelievers, we're trying to reduce their level of certainty. <laughs> they are absolutely certain in what they believe. They have no good reason to be certain in what they believe. And so we are going to graciously challenge their certainty. And that's the argument that we'll uh, walk through this morning. Where has the theory of evolution impacted our culture? Everywhere. Evolution, and specifically naturalism, which is a little broader than evolution. We'll come back to evolution in a minute. Naturalism really is the god of our age. When we talk about ultimate authorities, everybody has one. Uh, and for a lot of people, naturalism is their ultimate authority. It is the god of their age. So what is naturalism? Naturalism is the view that nature is all that there is. That is, only the natural universe exists. Natural is whatever can be studied by the natural or empirical sciences, physics, chemistry, and whatever can be reduced to physics and chemistry. Because ultimately, that's all that there is. Biology reduces to physics and chemistry. That's all there is. That's all we can know. That is the sum of everything. So naturalism is based on, or I'm going to describe naturalism to you in an, in an attempt to sort of boil it down to its essence, is based on three precepts. There are three things that naturalism is claiming. One is a rejection of what's called first philosophy. It's the idea that philosophical thought is prior to scientific thought. Which is higher up the food chain? Which is closer to the essence of reality? Which begets the other? And naturalism says philosophy comes from, is begot by natural causes. Chemical things in the brain, physical movements, Science comes first, philosophy flows from that. Two, a naturalist grand story. And this is the idea or the, the precept that everything you observe came through a naturalistic origin and a series of natural processes. There is a huge narrative that explains everything you see and experience, and that narrative is entirely natural. No supernatural, entirely natural. And then third is what's called a naturalist ontology which is just that the only things that actually exist 
That's what ontology is about, is existence. The only things that actually exist are things that can be described in natural terms and given a natural cause in in physical terms. Anything that cannot be described and explained in physical terms doesn't actually exist. There are only natural things. There is nothing else. So that is naturalism. Now evolutionism takes naturalism and joins it with evolutionary theory or what's called neo-Darwinism. And what, what Darwinism, or now we call it neo-Darwinism, is trying to do is explain our origins. Okay, we buy into all of this, so what is the naturalist grand story that can explain how we got from not all this stuff to all this stuff? And Darwinism seeks to provide the narrative to that, to explain that. Um, naturalism does not necessarily require evolutionism. You can be a naturalist and not buy into neo-Darwinism. But you can't buy into neo-Darwinism and not be a naturalist. That makes sense? Evolution is a philosophical position, not a scientific one. Naturalism says there are no philosophical <laughs> Well, that, that all philosophical positions flow from scientific positions. So this is the scientific position. And Darwinism is the philosophical position that flows from it. And the reason we say that is there's no proof, there's no scientific proof of neo-Darwinism. They acknowledge that it is a theory. It is not a absolutely proven defined law. And so it's the attempt, which is not a bad thing, to come up with the philosophical grand story that flows from the scientific worldview of naturalism. There's nothing wrong with that. When you have evidence, what you're supposed to do is try to come up with the story that makes sense of that evidence. That's what you're supposed to do, and that's what they're doing. And neo-Darwinism is an attempt to make sense of the evidence. Evolutionism has some problems, though. I mean, besides the obvious, what Christians see as the problems, but it has some internal problems. Evolution undermines human rationality. Why should we think that natural evidence wants to lead us to the truth when truth is a philosophical construct. And the natural world cares nothing for truth. Random disorder, chemical processes, have no love for the truth. That's not an important thing, right? It's indifferent. The, The raccoon trying to eat my chickens is not doing so out of some allegiance to the truth of survival of the fittest. It's just trying to eat my chickens. And so neo-Darwinism undermines human rationality. It, it, it can't make sense of that. And then as we've talked about many times, and we'll go over just quickly when we get to the, the negative argument, but neo-Darwinism can't account for human morality. 
It can't account for human dignity. Why should a human be treated as better or distinct from any other biological entity in a neo-Darwinistic worldview? It shouldn't be. But there are very few neo-Darwinists who live that way. For all of their talk about animal rights and blah, 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 there are very few neo-Darwinists who actually put an adult human life on the same level as cytoplankton. And yet, the neo-Darwinist worldview says you should. It can't account for why you wouldn't. So that's where we start when we're talking with somebody with a naturalist worldview. And it's not like they're going to say, I'm a naturalist, but they're going to say that they're evidence-based, that there's supernatural, there's fairy tales, there's ghost stories, there's religions, and then there's evidence-based reality and science. And we need to be more focused on one than the other. You can believe whatever children's story you want, but I live in the real world. And what they're expressing is a naturalistic worldview, that all that is is what is uh, natural and can be explained from nature. So we start where we always start. Negative, we've got to sow some seeds of, of doubt. They are certain about a worldview that they don't even understand, they don't live consistently with, it can't explain their own experience. So we've got to ask them some good questions and be kind and gracious as we try to get them to see they should not be as certain as they are. They're way too certain for what the facts they believe can support. Transcendental argument, same as always, right? The evolutionary worldview has no foundation for knowledge, rationality, morality. It, it can't explain, and I'll get into a, a bigger list here in just a second of abstract entities, but it can't explain any of this stuff that nearly everybody lives as if it's true. And the fact that they're willing to engage in a conversation with you shows that they believe at least some immaterial things are true because words. We'll get back to that, but logic, the ability to make an argument, the ability to know something. Um, think about all the things naturalism can't account for. So when you're dealing with somebody who's just absolutely certain that natural is all there is, that's a good time to go through the list of immaterial things, of abstract entities that they believe in and just graciously ask, how do you think about this? Or how do you account for this? Or how, what do you, you're trying to get them to see, actually, they believe in a lot of immaterial things. They believe in mentality. They believe that they think, they have ideas, that they can communicate those ideas to you, that you can receive those ideas, and that there's some correspondence between the idea in their head and the idea in your head. But we don't do that through a chemical exchange. You could explain it naturally if it was some sort of chemical exchange. I lick a tablet, and I hand you the tablet, and you lick the tablet, and now the same thing that was in my brain was in yours. That would be gross and a natural process. But it's not that. I can communicate with words something that I make a noise, a vibration and sound waves, and you receive a vibration, and somehow that, that's interesting. <laughs> what about intentionality? The, the, the distinctive property, the aboutness of, of entities that separates them from other things. The, the, this book is not Andrew. 
there's a concrete existence there. And I can speak uh, to the existence of this in an intentional and a meaningful way that's distinct from the existence that's his. What about subjectivity? Don't you all have a perspective? And isn't your perspective oftentimes different from the person next to you? That's, sub- that's subjective. The things I think. We can both look at this book and one of us thinks it's a good book and one of us thinks it's a bad book. How do you account for that? It's, it doesn't make sense in a purely natural, materialistic, chemical world. Personality and private access. Naturalism cannot explain personality, that Karen and I would be distinct personalities. And along with that, private access, that there are things in my mind that are beyond anyone's reach. The mind is the one place that I can hide something that you can never find. How? There has to be a way to extract it from me chemically, right? There has to be a way that you could cut my brain open or that you could hook me up to a machine and read certain wavelengths and pull that secret from me. But we know that's not true. How can hidden access exist? Um, Or private access. Think about abstract entities. So again, you're talking with somebody who's just so certain that naturalism, materialism is all that there is. Abstract entities. What about numbers? What are numbers? They're mathematical objects. Isn't there a good reason for thinking numbers really exist? How many books are here? We all know the answer. Doesn't the fact that we all know the answer give us pretty good proof that numbers exist? If, I, if you had seven cookies and then I came to visit you and you were left with one cookie, wouldn't that be pretty good evidence that numbers exist? You have fewer than you used to have. Uh, Mathematical objects exist. They are real. They are mathematical truths. But numbers are not physical entities. They're not natural entities. They're concepts. They're abstract entities. And naturalism cannot explain for abstract entities. And you can pick. There are a a zillion abstract entities. And you pick the ones that are most interesting to you or the one that you can get the person to agree with. Uh, Universals. Redness of that car. We can disagree over shades of red. But we have to agree that the universal principle of redness is one we understand. Or go up a level. The principle of color. That color is a distinct Uh, abstract concept is not a physical natural thing. You can't point to color, qua color and say, ah, this is the right? That's not the way it works. Um, Propositions. Statements that reflect truth. The statement itself has existence. The truth behind the statement has existence. When I say that is a red car, my statement has existence. That's the sentence that I uttered, the proposition. But the truth behind the proposition also. The car exists and has the quality of redness. All this stuff is abstract. Again, you can really go down a rat hole here. But there's, there's just a zillion abstract entities that a purely materialistic worldview says those don't exist. But that's not consistent with the person's experience. They live as if numbers do exist. 
They live as if propositions do exist. It's volition and the want to do something. Isn't your desire to do something real? Doesn't that have existence? Isn't your experience that you want something or you don't want something? How do you account for that? Oh, it's all chemical. Wait, what? So that's the ultimate argument here, is that their worldview cannot account for any of this stuff that we all live as though it's true, because it is true. And so you end up asking somebody who has a purely naturalistic worldview, can you explain what a number is? How do you describe a number in chemical and biological terms? And just see where they go, (laughs) right? Because they're going to have a hard time with that one. Or emotions is a good, like they experience emotions. They can claim they're all chemically induced, but that's fascinating because not all, at the very least, we haven't figured out how to chemically induce all emotions, right? Don't, there are some emotions, emotions that you know the medication can't fake. (laughs) The electroshock therapy can't create. If even one of those exists, then naturalism can't be true because how do you account for even that one emotion? Proximate argument. So we're going to talk about we're going to attack the unbeliever's worldview from the evidence in the external world. Proximate is the evidence in the world around you. Um, and the evolutionary worldview, because I said it's philosophical, it's not scientific, it has serious internal inconsistencies. Serious claims it makes where it collapses under the weight of its own claim. So let's think about just a couple of these. Let's think about order from disorder. The evolutionary worldview hinges on disorder turning into order. Random assortment of atoms, no matter how much time and heat and whatever else you want to put in the mix, you've got to get from a random assortment of atoms, never mind where they came from, you've got to get from there to an orderly universe. Not not only is there no evidence that that happens, we all agree the universe is amazingly ordered. Every worldview agrees it is amazingly ordered. If we were any closer to the sun, we'd be hosed. If the nitrogen percentage in our soil was low, we'd be hosed. You see all the things that we're hosed if this is not really, really carefully ordered. So the question is, which worldview can explain why there's an orderly universe? That's the critical question. Hey, which worldview can account for why we have order? And do you know what the biggest proximate, evidence-based problem for Darwinian evolution is? The second law of thermodynamics. It's not what we observe in nature. We don't observe order or disorder becoming order. We observe just the opposite, that all systems that we've ever observed increase in disorder. They are spiraling out of control. Granted, really slowly, but there's a huge difference between we're going that way and we're going this way, and everyone we've ever observed, we're going that way. Disorder, lack of order. The fundamental claim of evolution is that the world went, the universe, went from disorder to order. And we have never observed this happening in nature. Never, ever, ever, not even once. 
and many, many, many times, so many times, it's a law of science. We've observed the opposite. So in a universe that is all disorder, all irrationality, all randomness, which worldview can attempt to explain how we got to order and intentionality and complexity and rationality? Paul Davies is a uh, English physicist. He's a professor at Arizona State University. He's the president of, of one of the organizations in this field from the Dar- neo-Darwinian point of view. He says, the greatest puzzle is where all the order in the universe came from originally. How did the cosmos get wound up if the second law of thermodynamics predicts asymmetric unwinding toward disorder? He acknowledges. Yeah, where did that come from? And again, it's not to say that you get to sit at a table with a PhD physicist and make them look like a fool because you read one book. But it's asking the questions of, you seem so sure. And yet when I think about your worldview, let me make sure I understand it correctly. There's only natural There's a story that explains it all, but it's a purely closed system, naturalistic story, and the only things that have real existence are the things that fit within that. I I can't make sense of the world that I see using the view you give me. Help me see what I'm missing. Just real quick, one of the things I've heard in response to that is... uh, universe is under no obligation to make sense to you, which is essentially Kantian, you know. That, but that's what, that's what I've heard some of these prominent atheist naturalists say. Yeah, and, and the reply to them has to be, you're not allowed to play that card because the foundation of your worldview is that sense can be made of it. And the, the claim of your worldview is not, so, and this is an important thing to acknowledge, They're not claiming neo-Darwinism is right. They're claiming neo-Darwinism makes the best sense. It's the best grand story we've got given the evidence that we have. We may discover new evidence in the future that gives us a better grand story, but of the evidence we have, neo-Darwinism makes the most sense of it. And what we're saying is, no, it doesn't. It denies the evidence that we have. And that's where the fight has to be. Not a, I'm saying 100% that I can prove Christianity's right and this is wrong. It's a, no, you're not playing the game honestly. Because by the very rules you set, you should reject neo-Darwinism out of hand. Right, so yeah, if the universe is, if that's true, then any other sort of scientific observations that we make they're under no obligation to make sense to us. So you just get to pick and choose. And then, like, what, in what way are we using the term scientific at that point? Right. Which, which is the truth. Like, that's, that's the great crime of academic science today, is it's unscientific. It's a, it's a religion. It's a, it's a naturalistic, Darwinistic cult that throws out evidence that doesn't satisfy their preconceived narrative and trumps up, makes up evidence. Look at the climate climate evidence that is made up to support an existing narrative. 
And that like, it's not good to live in a world where you truly can't trust science because people are calling something science that isn't. Um, the, the yard signs people have, science is science? No. No, it isn't. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> Yeah, Karen. It just makes me think of the alphabet soup thing. Like this logic, they would be yeah. fine looking at the alphabet soup, and all of a sudden there's you know one of Shakespeare's sonnets on there, and they would be like, well, I guess that's it happens. <laughs> the odds were one in seven hundred and eighty-six trillion, and here it is, right? Like, no, the odds were zero. It's not one in seven hundred. It's it's zero. <laughs> yeah, they get to make it up. Uh, let's talk about another one, a serious problem or inconsistency with neo-Darwinism. Oh, by the way, obviously Christians can account for the order to disorder, disorder to order problem, because we say there is a God who made it orderly, a God who interfered, to use a weird word, but to, who interfered with the chaos and the randomness and the disorder and made out of nothing something that's orderly that our sin and rebellion and curse has caused to spiral out of control. Ah, that, that we can explain. Again, you don't have to buy it. And that's the part you've got to be able to emphasize in these conversations with people. I'm not trying to convince you that this is the only thing you can believe. I can't do that. Only God can. What I'm trying to say is you claim that you have a monopoly on reasonable worldviews. And when I sit down and look at our worldviews, yours cannot explain to me anything that I see or think and experience and Christianity, like it or not, at least has answers. And there are a lot of answers we don't like, that there's a God to whom we have obligations and tells us what to do. That is not something humans want to hear. And yet, that doesn't make it wrong. What about life from non-life? Isn't this another problem for neo-Darwinism? The origin of the first cell and if you want to be a little bit of a smart aleck in these conversations, when you get to this one, it is a fun time to ask, what, what happened to the scientific method thing? Because when it comes to the origin of the first cell, neo-Darwinists totally abandon the scientific method and get to just make up stories. They get to just posit nonsense. Um, one of the, this is the most perplexing and frustrating problem for honest evolutionary biologists is their inability to explain where the first cell would have come from. Even if you buy every evolutionary idea after that, you still have to account for the first one. David E. Green is at the Institute of Enzyme Research at the University of Wisconsin. Yes, that is a thing. <laughs> He says, the macromolecule to cell transition is a jump of fantastic dimensions, which lies beyond the range of testable hypotheses. In this area, it is all conjecture. The available facts cannot provide a basis for postulating that cells arose on this planet. We can't do it. We cannot produce life from non-life. We've never observed it once, and it ain't for lack of trying. Whenever we try to interfere with already existing life, we create unbelievable messes. We create all kinds of genetic anomalies and stuff dies. When we try to create life, even from life, stuff dies. And that, like, it's a real challenge of we're not even good at turning life into life outside of the normal biological processes. We create death. Questions about that one? 
So now that's all the kind of high-level origin stuff with with neo-Darwinism. The real problem, what's more fun to talk about now, what will come up in this book, what will come up in Michael Behe's book, Darwin, Darwin's Black Box, is this concept of irreducible complexity. And this is something that, you know, Darwin never investigated things on the molecular level. That was not the science available to him, or it's not the research he did. He used only macro structure issues, big, fully formed entities. So it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility to study macro biological structures and posit that evolution could explain how you got from a seagull to a pelican. Kind of. When you start looking at the evidence of that, you really can't explain that either, but we'll get to that. But that's what Darwin's doing. Darwin's explaining why birds with shorter wings versus the birds with larger... That's the level at which Darwin is doing his research. That is categorically different from explaining evolutionary changes at the molecular level, which is where it has to start. If At the molecular level, if a bird is born with a genetic abnormality where its beak is a little shorter than its peers, it may be at a, at a natural selection advantage or disadvantage, right? Just shorter beak. If a bird is born with a genetic abnormality at the molecular level, you know what happens? It's not born. It dies, right? It does not exist. Or it quickly dies as that fails to produce or develop into whatever it's supposed to. If you take out any one component at the molecular level, the whole thing fails. So we use the example of the mousetrap. And the mousetrap is multiple pieces, and it's the block of wood, and it's the metal bar, and it's the spring, and it's the piece of cheese. And you have to imagine they're not allowed to all come together at once. You only get one change at a time. And that change has to be so advantageous, natural selection, that it's passed on. And then that you have to have another abnormality that is so advantageous, it is passed on. And then eventually, after you have enough of those, you end up with not just a box of parts, but with a functioning mousetrap. Every step of the way has to be randomly acquired, advantageous, and passed on. And that's not what happens. It's not what ever happens. Again, what happened to the scientific method? Because that is not what we observe at all. Natural selection cannot possibly work at the molecular level. And so the, the question from the Christian to the naturalist in these conversations, and again, you've got to, you've got to care enough about the person to say it with humility, but it's the how is it that you're comfortable believing all these things you don't have an answer to? They are so sure of their worldview. And if the purpose of this conversation was for them to convince you of their worldview, and you went into it eagerly, 
let's do that. Yes, convince me. They can't make sense of anything. And the stuff they say explains it. A couple of thoughtful questions reveals doesn't explain anything. Biological change doesn't happen without a mechanism. Natural selection says organisms with the most suitable characteristic for their environment are more likely to be successful and then to procreate and to pass those genes on. But all of it is required on the biological change first occurring and being advantageous rather than killing them. And it can happen one at a time. Um, The biggest problems for natural selection, it doesn't produce any new genetic information. You've got to explain biodiversity. We have everything from sea anemones to human beings. You have to explain with a single cell theory that life began with a single cell. Somehow, we're not going to worry about explaining that. But evolution takes you from that single cell to explain all the biodiversity we see. You've got to explain how that can happen, how new genetic information can be created. Okay, the cell splits. You have two identical cells, and those cells split. Now you have four identical cells. But we don't have cells with identical genetic information, do we? Our bodies have trillions of cells that have different information. And mine, different from Karen's, and different from the sea anemones, and for... And you have to explain where this new genetic information came from. And then you have to say, well, genetic anomalies. Like, we, we all agree, genetic anomalies can happen. Well, all right. So then what we need to say is, those genetic anomalies have to be advantageous. Because they can't kill you. You can't pass it on. If the moment it happens to you, you're dead. And natural selection says, it would have to be advantageous enough so that then you get to pass on that genetic material because it's more valuable than the one who doesn't have that one. It is madness. Um, it can't count for what's, account for what's called incipient forms, the initial stage of something. You can tell me how I get from a small fish to a big fish. We don't actually, anyway. You, you can tell me that it accounts for that, but you can't tell me how you got from a lizard to a fish. You can't account for the initial form of the fish. The first lizard that could breathe underwater and no longer breathe above the water, how is that advantageous to the lizard? Like there's just it, it doesn't reduce. There's an irreducible level of complexity here. Charles Darwin wrote, "If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, but I can find no such case. Now, that's no shame on Darwin. He's saying, I did not find a case. The shame of the scientific community is that in all of these years since Darwin, we've found a lot of these cases. And we've not gone back to this and said, yet Darwin himself recognized that if you did find those cases, this mechanism for biological change doesn't work. You have spiders that have these incredible sacs of poison where the poison itself is poisonous to the spider. Which was developed first, the sac or the poison? Well, if the poison was developed first, it would have killed the spider. But if the sac was developed first, why would that have been useful to the spider to have an empty sac that doesn't have poison, right? There are tons of examples in science of irreducible complexity. It just doesn't work. Um, And the mutations 
attempted solution that it's genetic mutations and just happens. When you have an infinite amount of time, that's why they you know, went from the universe is 45 million years old to then 450 million years old to now, I don't even know what they say now, it's in the billions. Yeah. Why do they keep adding all this time? Because when you start talking about this kind of change that we haven't seen in the 6,000 or so years we've been observing, you've you you got to elongate your, your time scale. Uh, one mutation wouldn't do it. You'd have to have multiple positive subsequent mutations to end up with uh, a new biological material. You know the example that will sometimes get used? Uh, what, what is the... When we talk about uh, biological or genetic mutations, usually um, they kill people immediately. Like the person will die in the womb or cannot live long at all because they just... Um, what's the one that's pointed to as being a positive biological genetic mutation? Do y'all know? It's sickle cell anemia, which gives you resistance to malaria. The downside of it is that it usually kills you by 30. But other than that, totally positive genetic anomaly. Right? And what it can account for is at some point you should expect that genetic mutation which is passed on to improve to the point where people live longer. Natural selection says that because that has a positive advantage, set aside the negatives, it should work out the kinks in the system and you should get to a point where sickle cell doesn't actually kill you. It only provides you resistance to malaria. And we haven't found a person yet for whom that's true. Because that's not the way it works. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't make people healthier. Another problem with neo-Darwinianism is... We're talking about, they claim all this biological change has happened, right? And they claim that this biological change has happened, but they can't explain the mechanism because the mechanism that they give us doesn't work. Um, they can't explain life from non-life. They can't explain order from disorder. Another one that they can't explain is the fossil evidence, and this one really hurts their feelings because they're so confident that the fossils are on their side. And so you have to be careful because um, in my experience, we talked about it when we talked about the reliability of the Bible. Unbelievers will really come across as pompous know-it-alls that the Bible can't be believed because they've been given just enough wrong information to be dangerous. And they'll really come across like dummies. And you've got to be careful to not make them feel like a dummy because it's not their fault. They've got a bunch of bad information and you need to help them. This is the, another area for me where that's been true, is people have watched just enough of the Discovery Channel to think that they know what the fossil record says, or they went to the Natural History Museum in Manhattan, and that explains it all. Right? That, that, and there's a lot of ways that you could go about this conversation, and if this is the type of thing that excites you, you should read books on it, and I can make other recommendations. But it, what's the baseline level of information that we all would benefit from having? What, what should we expect from the fossil evidence? So think about what they're saying. Start with a cell, get to a world filled with people and animals and plants and all kinds of things. And somewhere along the way, there was a fish, and then, no way, am I drawing a monkey? And then monkeys, I'll draw a deranged cat. 
right? Like you have all this biological life that at one point was not very diverse and through natural selection and evolution became diverse. So what would we expect the fossil evidence to show us? And the answer is what's called transitional forms. If I'm looking through billions of years of layers of rock and you're telling me that there was some point in time where the cat came from the fish. That's fine. Down here's the fish. Up here's the cat. They would argue with me because they would say the break was much earlier than that between cats and fish. But you all get the idea. Where is the fish cat? That's what we would expect to see. We would expect to find fish cats. Some sort of transitional form between what was and what now is. And we would be totally okay with the fact that that transitional form no longer exists because that was a suboptimal biological species that natural selection and evolution pushed into a more... Op- but we're, we're great with that, no problem, given their theory. But where is my fish cat? And do you know what the fossil record shows? No fish cats. No transitional forms. The, the biggest thing you would expect to see from the fossil record, given this set of facts, are transitional forms. And do you know how many transitional forms we have in the fossil record? Zero. Big, fat, stinking zero. And every now and then, they'll take like a, like a fish that obviously got stabbed by a stick and is missing a chunk of his body, and they'll say, ah, fish cat. <laughs> and then they run some time, like, oh, it turns out it wasn't fish cat. It's just a cat that got stabbed by a stick, right? It's that level of absurd. Stephen Jay Gould, y'all have probably heard of him. All pa- he says, all paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. So how does he solve the fish cat problem? He says, oh no, no, the change from fish to cat is so fast that you just have very few fish cats in between. And that's why we don't see them in the fossil record. Dude, you've lo- where did the science go? I thought we were committed to science. We're committed to evidence-based reasoning. No, we're committed to madness. And so the attempted solution, again, is what they call this punctuated equilibrium, which is that evolution, even though it's really slow, it's not gradual. It happens in spurts. So it takes a very long time, and then it happens really quick, and then nothing happens for a long time, and it happens really quick. And that's why you'll look in the fossil record, and at one layer, you will have nothing, no living organisms. And then on the next layer up, you will have all the living organisms, the cats, the fish, the monkeys, the plants. The, and you, well, where's the layer in between? Oh, no, it's just oh, punctuated equilibrium. Happens fast. Again, it's just to ask the unbeliever the question. You don't want you can win this battle and lose the war. This is not to make you seem like the brilliant person and then the dummy. It is to say, why are you so sure? Because when I listen to what you believe and how you describe the universe, there are ways that I would rather believe that. Because then I could live however I wanted to live. I would have no obligations to God or anyone. 
there's a lot appealing to me about that. But when you explain to me what's true about the universe, it doesn't make sense of anything that I see or experience or live. And that's the existential negative argument is that's not how they live either. They don't live as if numbers don't exist. They don't live as if morality doesn't exist. They don't live as if they are totally at the mercy of the chemical events that happen in their brains and there's no such thing as independent personality or free will. Or like, they don't live that way. And so their experience, all the evidence in the world around them, and the philosophical constructs, none of theirs can account for any of the important questions of life. So let's look at Christianity. I'm not saying you have to believe it. Let's just look at Christianity, and I can show you at least how Christianity explains it. And that'll be next week. We'll talk about the positive argument.